Hello, I am Rob Fredette, and welcome to my new podcast, HodgePod with Rob Fredette. This podcast is a historical podcast looking at events, music, film, television, sports, crime, and people. You may get a refresher each week, or I hope you'll learn something new as well. You can get a hold of me at my email address for HodgePod. It is hodgepodallin at yahoo.com. So if you have a suggestion, a topic, or any feedback, please let me know. I love feedback, good or bad. Please give a follow as well and tell your friends. And thank you to those who have listened the first month. I really do appreciate it. You can listen to HodgePod on these platforms, Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, the Podbean app, Google Podcast, and the Overcast app. Next week for Episode 5, I'm going to get you ready for the 2022 college football and NFL seasons. We're going to go back to 1984, the Friday after Thanksgiving, the Hail Mary pass by Doug Flutie. As time ran out, Boston College upsets the Miami Hurricanes. This game pretty much solidified the Heisman Trophy for Flutie in 1984. So we'll look at that next week. I'm looking forward to it. But for episode four this week, this one was a real eye-opener for me. I spoke with Dennis Regan last year, a former special agent with the FBI, on his career in law enforcement, and Dennis's tenure in the FBI is impressive. He was involved with the investigation of serial killer Gary Ray Bowles in 1994. Bowles murdered six people, and Dennis takes you into the interrogation room with Bowles. Dennis was also at the Centennial Park bombing in the midst of the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. He was at Ground Zero on September 11, 2001, and at the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. He shared his roles in each of those horrible moments in our history. But last year when I interviewed him, I asked him why he got into law enforcement, and he explained it this way when I interviewed, so I hope you enjoy the interview. Like when I was 10 years old, Rob, it was, uh, you know, truth, justice, the American way. I would run home, watch Batman and Robin, watch Superman. And I, I really liked that flavor. I, from that point on, always wanted to be an FBI agent. When I went to Boston College, I majored in accounting. So when I went to uh, work at, you know, a, what was a big eight public accounting firm, that's something that I knew that the FBI liked. I was also in ROTC and the uh, I was commissioned as a U.S. Army officer, so I knew that the FBI liked that too. So once I got the amount of time to sit for my CPA, I applied to the FBI to be a special agent and went through that process. Ultimately, I was frozen for about a year, year and a half because of the Gulf War, but eventually at the age of 26, I was offered a position as a special agent with the FBI in uh, March of 1992. So you, you, at the age of 26, you joined the FBI. Uh, a lot of people at 26 are uh, not doing things maybe that they need to do or, you know, they don't have their career set out, but you had the FBI already ready to go at 26. So your first post uh, with the FBI, where was that at? It was in Savannah, Georgia. So I went down from Quantico straight down to Savannah, and I spent six years there from 92 to 98. Then there was a call out. Uh, the, the FBI asked if anybody wanted to go to the Los Angeles division or the New York division of the FBI, and I think I was the only one 
that said that I would uh, volunteer to go to New York. Uh, they sent me to New York. I wanted to work bigger cases. I wanted to experience living in New York City. So I was there from 98 to 2004. And living and working at the FBI in New York, they actually give you a bonus in terms of seniority, get to the ultimate place you want to retire to. And so then after about 13 years in the Bureau, six in Savannah and about seven in New York, I eventually went to uh, back to Boston. And so I was in Boston from 90, let's see, what is that, 90, 2004 to uh, 2008. And from there, I went up to Portsmouth, New Hampshire from 2008 to 2016. Wow. So, so that's three incredible. That, that is really uh, a great um, path that you had. So you joined the FBI and then what was your first case that you actually worked? What, what did it consist of? And what do you remember your first case? Well, I remember that I was uh, within like a week. I was going on a large arrest. It was a drug arrest in the middle of Georgia. And we were supposed to arrest five people at a mobile home. And I was nervous. It was my first first arrest. And uh, we went in there, into the mobile home, probably with about seven agents. Uh, there was only a... Uh, a daughter and a grandfather there. And I had to have eyes on the daughter as uh, she got dressed and uh, to be arrested. And I heard a big noise and I thought it was someone that had, uh, you know, maybe shot around someplace because this was a high intensity arrest. And it was the grandfather that was putting on his prosthetic leg and was so nervous that he, he fell on the ground Wow. And um, so it was really much to do about nothing. That was my first arrest. Uh, shortly thereafter, I was at my first and only shooting. It was an individual who had uh, committed a murder within the, that week and then was, uh, I believe, he was raping someone at a library. He was cornered in a park with his gun. And I was one of the first, you know, first law enforcement agents there. And I was behind a uh, Savannah Police Department car that was in the park. And the uh, person next to me got the command by the SWAT team leader to shoot the subject as he was trying to exit the park. And he, he shot him in the leg and they arrested him. Um, so those were, you know, uh, cases that were, you know, sort of, you know, potentially violent cases. But traditionally, I worked financial fraud. So... I worked uh, complex financial fraud. That was sort of my expertise. And uh, the beauty of the FBI is you could do all sorts of things. So during that time in Savannah, Georgia, I was also on the SWAT team in Atlanta when we were, you know, training for the 96 Olympics. Mm -hmm. So uh, you mentioned Georgia, and uh, this brings us to uh, a case that really fascinated me when I when I was reading about it um, after, before we spoke, before we did the uh, broadcast here. Um, it was uh, Gary Ray Bowles, a serial killer um, who killed six people from March of 1994 to uh, November of 1994, and you were then stationed in Savannah. And Gary Ray Bowles uh, was on the run for a while, but eventually got caught and uh, you were involved in uh, the interrogation of Bowles, and that seems to be like a big, big deal. Uh, first of all, he was on America's Most Wanted, what, five times uh, he was uh, featured on America's Most Wanted? Correct. Yeah, he was on there for five times, and 
uh, John Walsh called him the America's most wanted because he was a serial killer and we knew who he was, uh, but he was still, we couldn't find him. So uh, John Walsh called him the America's most wanted. Yeah, I got that case. My supervisor was working on it with Savannah Police Department and they realized that Gary Ray Bowles was the killer of, uh, killed six people. One of them was in Savannah, Georgia. And when we realized that, Savannah Police Department charged him with murder, and then the federal government could come on and charge him with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution if he's been charged in the state of Georgia and he's left the state. So I was working on a Friday night. Like I said, um, violent crime isn't my expertise, but I was working late on a Friday, and my boss wanted to get have me get that UFAP warrant first thing Monday morning. And so by virtue of working late on a Friday, I was given the case. And then it was to try and find Gary. And really that was like, a I tried to be a force multiplier to draw publicity to the case. He was on America's Most Wanted five times. He became a FBI top 10 fugitive in November 94. And it was really like working on leads, trying to find where he was located. By the time we actually got in on the case and realized that he was the killer of Milton Bradley in Savannah. He had killed five of the six people and had basically went underground in Jacksonville, Florida. He got arrested after killing the sixth person because he left the day labor slip at the scene of the murder under his assumed name. And then when he went back to work at the day labor company, they reached out to the police as the police had asked them to. Um, he got picked up when he was being interviewed, he confessed to being Gary Ray Bowles, and that was the time uh, Savannah is about two hours away from Jacksonville. Mm -hmm. I jumped in the car with Savannah Detective John Best, and we went down, and we interviewed, I must have interviewed Gary for about six hours that day, day of his best, um, concentrating on his travels throughout the country, his history as a child, which is probably where his uh, violence and rage came from, and then focused on the murder in Atlanta when, uh, since the police detectives from Atlanta couldn't come down to interview him, so I sort of focused on that so, as well. So two things: um, what was it like? What's it? What was it like back then on America's Most Wanted when you were behind the scenes? You were taking tips. Did. Uh, were there a lot of uh, agents that were in the background that were actually taking the tips uh, while you were actually probably uh, doing it during the show? Was that correct? Yeah, we drove uh, drove or flew up to D.C. and we would take the tips. Usually this is just the case agents that would come there. And so I uh, maybe uh, two of us went up and we, uh, you know, basically we took any of the calls that thought we thought were important. They would have people taking the calls on staff at America's Most Wanted, and if there was a hot call, they would, uh, you know, they would get us over there, and then we would speak with the person. You know, um, there were people that would call in that thought that Gary Ray Bowles was basically living with them at the time, and you know, sort of, it was for us to figure out how uh, how to determine whether these people were in fact with Gary Ray Bowles or they was just a, you know, doppelganger or someone that looked like Gary. And so we, we worked through that, you know, working with some of the sources of, of um, you know, Gary's friends from his past life, we're able to determine that, you know, those people weren't Gary. 
So you, you get the you get the the assignment to interrogate Gary Bowles. He was on the top ten uh, most wanted on the FBI list. So that must have been uh, before you got into the interrogation room. Uh, how did you feel, and what uh, what was going through your mind as you went in there? Because uh, not everybody goes into an interrogation room to in, interrogate a murder or a serial killer. So, what was going through your mind before that uh, before that interaction? Well, so before the uh, leaving Savannah and going down to Jacksonville, the first thing I did was to disregard the FBI rule that we don't tape our interviews. I just thought that was senseless. If we were going to have an individual that is actually going to confess to a crime, we better have that on tape. So I, I ignored the FBI protocol to not conduct uh, taped interviews and grabbed my tape recorder and tapes and went down to Jacksonville. And, uh, you know, we got to, I think it was the county sheriff's office. And then it's, you have to Mirandize him. You have to read the advice of rights and you have to get it signed. And at that point, really it was cathartic to him. He was ready to confess. So the interrogation was more like an interview and treating him with respect so that, uh, you know, he knew that you were on his level and you were going to uh, be professional and courteous and he was going, you were going to let him speak. And, so it was, it was really, uh, you know, it wasn't a very difficult interview, but you, know, you all, obviously you have to leave out details and have him fill in those details. And, you know, you have to make sure you get all the facts of the murders and his travels because we want to confirm where he was. You also want to make sure that if there are murders that he's not, you know, claiming, you want to be able to discount those. And so we sort of follow his travels through, he was called the I-95 killer because he killed, I believe, three people in, in Florida. He went up to Baltimore after uh, his, the first person that he killed from Florida, went up to Baltimore and came down to Savannah, over to Atlanta, and back down to Jacksonville where he killed his last two. So you, know, you want to make sure that you understand his travels so you can discount any murders that he doesn't claim. And he was... Uh... Uh, Gary Bowles, he, uh, looking back at his, uh, when, as, as, when he was on the run, he had uh, many aliases. He had many social security numbers. So putting those pieces together to get him must have been, uh, you know, challenging at times. And you might have felt you gotten close. Did you ever feel like you were getting close even before he got caught on that, after that sixth murder? Yeah, there were times that we thought we, you know, there's a 75%, 80% chance he's at this location. And we would have SWAT teams, you know, busting down doors only to come up with someone that wasn't Gary Bowles. And when he was in Jacksonville, uh, between the fifth and the sixth murders, they actually sent the police out and he actually had a fake ID that he presented and said that he wasn't Gary Bowles. They thought that he may be. And he had memorized the social security and, biographical information of this alias and was able to get out that one time. So there were a couple of close calls. He also said that when he was working for day labor and things that once or twice, he would be hitchhiking to get to a, a labor spot and he would get, uh, he was stopped by the police and the police actually gave him a ride to the location so that he could go to work. So there, there were a couple of close calls, um, you know, through the time that we were looking to get 
And a couple of things about the case was uh, for Gary Bowles. I know that the composite sketch that came out resembled him quite. Uh, it was almost like an exact match. So whoever uh, gave those descriptions did a great job. Number one. And number two, he made a little detour up to Nashville at an ATM. And uh, looking at that video, he seemed like he didn't have any worries in the world. Yeah, I mean, he basically had no conscience. Um, he went to jail before uh, for several years for almost killing his uh, prostitute girlfriend. And then as soon as he got out of prison, he just started killing. So uh, he had a, obviously, a, he had a drug problem. He had an alcohol problem. And... He, uh, there were times where he, he didn't need to kill these people. He just, uh, he wanted to. So, uh, I don't know, you know, it all go back, goes back to his childhood, but he, uh, he felt comfortable and he moved around the East coast freely. He was, um, he was a, he was a male hustler. So he would go into gay bars and earn his money that way. So he felt free going, uh, you know, fluidly moving throughout the community. And he was um, also into, um, you know, uh, you know, really bad stuff as far as his M.O., as far as killing his victims. That was uh, pretty violent. Yeah, he he really was. He had um, I was, you know, recently on a show called Mark of the Killer, because what he would do is he would usually in all the murders, he would stuff something down their throat, be it rags or toilet paper, dirt, leaves, a uh, sex toy. But in his killings, he, uh, he strangled some, he stabbed uh, one, he shotgunned another and hit someone over the head with a 40 pound paver in another case. So they were all, you know, violent crimes, violent murders. Uh, but he, uh, they were also very, uh, but he did have that mark of a killer where he would always try and make sure he was stopping their breathing by throwing some, something down their throat. So he, he, uh, he confesses in 1994. So we go up a couple of years to 1996. Um, that's when the trial was for Gary Ray Bowles. Is that correct? That's correct. He actually, uh, he pled guilty to the, the sixth murder. That's the one that he was initially going to be tried on. There was Walter Jamal Hinton, mm-hmm. and uh, then they had the death penalty phase in the case. And at the time, I was actually on the SWAT team for the 96 Olympics. We were staged at City Hall East in, in Atlanta, and I had, to, I had to fly down to Jacksonville to testify in that case. And uh, that was for his death penalty trial. So he was, he was convicted there and sentenced to death. Uh, later appealed, but it, eventually he was executed in 2019. Yes, yeah, so he was executed on August 22nd, 2019, by lethal injection at a Florida state prison in Stark, Florida. So uh, it was 25 years after uh, his uh, getting caught, he ended up getting put to death uh, by lethal injection. Um, that was uh, quite a deal. Um, so, yeah. uh, so when. Um, First- go ahead. I'll just say, say personally, I was I'm against the death penalty, uh, and I had to testify against him in that death penalty phase. And you know, truthfully, I had to say what he had told me. It was all in, in tape, so I really couldn't change anything. Uh, but even then, he had his attorney come over to say hi to me. He would send me letters from from prison, from death row, 
Uh, he was typically looking for something like a top 10 poster and things like that. Uh, but, you know, he treated me, uh, you know, professionally throughout the time. And I, you know, I did the same courtesy. It was at, at one point, the FBI behavioral analysis unit goes out and they send one individual from the unit out to interview all the serial murders and this head of the, uh, well, this person who ended up becoming head of the polygraph unit, but was then in the behavioral analysis unit, mm -hmm. went out and interviewed Gary. And then, um, and Gary told him that I conducted a decent interview. Then fast forward when I'm in the New York office in 2001, 2002, I applied for the polygraph program. And the person I applied to, the head of the polygraph unit, happens to be the person who interviewed Gary um, at death row. And uh, so it was almost like I ended up getting the job as a polygrapher. It was almost like Gary vouched for me on death row for me wow. to get my job as a polygrapher. Crazy stuff. Wow. That, that, that is unbelievable. And um, you mentioned that you were in Atlanta for the uh, part of the SWAT team in 1996. And at that time, that's when the Centennial bombing was at uh, Centennial Park uh, in downtown Atlanta. So um, did you, were you there after the, uh, a bombing? I know you had to go to, uh, interrogate Gary Bowles, but, uh, did you end up going back to Atlanta after that? Yeah. So at that time when I was at the Olympics, I was testifying. So I had already, Gary was, uh, you know, arrested back in 94. So I didn't go testify when I came back. Um, I was still working, we were working the morning shift. So when that bomb went off, that was at, at night. Uh, when we came up the next morning, we were all sent to the to the bomb blast, and it was uh, it was a rainy, murky day, and it was somewhat poorly organized because we ended up we were on the SWAT team and we ended up sort of picking up the shrapnel around the bomb blast area. And I don't know if you remember Centennial Park, but they were financing the park with bricks. You would pick up uh i mean you would um put your name on a brick you'd spend 35 dollars mm -hmm. put your name on a brick and those bricks would be placed in the park so your name would be actually in the park and um i stood over where the the lady um was bleeding before she i think she was uh, you know she was put on the bricks and um i'll never forget it there were two bricks and then there was sort of blood around those bricks and you would expect to see people's names there because they were financing the purchase uh you know for those bricks and instead um in those two bricks it said like uh goodwill to all men and and then the next brick was and peace to his people on earth and there was um she had sort of bled out a lot around those bricks and then it had been raining out so that sort of you know moved the blood out even further it was uh it was just a very surreal shot. I just remembered standing over it and, um, you know, it was obviously a terrible day, but, um, surreal to be. Well, you know, just thinking right now, you interrogated a top 10 FBI most wanted and within days you're in Atlanta with the bombing. Did you ever like now, or did you back then like say, wow, I just, this is just, I mean, people in a normal day just do about their jobs and your job was working for the FBI. Did you ever say like, take a step back and just say decompress? Yeah. Um, I just sort of was into 
being an FBI agent just thought it was the greatest job in the world and and believe that if you're like the sum of all your experiences, I just thought that I was lucky to be experiencing these things in life um, in a weird sort of way. I mean, if, if you're an agent, you wouldn't want to be anywhere but in the mix. So I was, I just considered myself fortunate. So you're in uh, Georgia and then at, I remember you said earlier, you went to New York in what, 2001 for the FBI? Uh, 1998. Right. Yeah. And so, so you're there in New York, and then the 20th anniversary of nine, September 11th is approaching us. Um, and basically, uh, that's one of the worst days in the history of this country, if not the worst day. And um, I, I've talked to you before, and uh, you were within blocks of the World Trade Center. And I know it may be hard to talk about, but I know that um, you were down there and um, – I know if you can reflect a little bit on that, I think, uh, you know, you were really like at ground zero. Oh yeah. Um, I was going to take my daughter for her four month old checkup. I was living in lower Manhattan at the time at 20th and first street. And, um, my brother-in-law from California, I hadn't put the TV on. He called to tell us that the trade centers had been hit. I probably was going to take my daughter to a 9:30 checkup. So uh, I think the trade special hit around nine o'clock. And so I was, had my suit on, I grabbed a pair of jeans, jumped in my FBI car. Obviously the checkup was canceled and I got behind a bunch of emergency vehicles and went to my office, which was 26 Earl Plaza, which is about three quarters of a mile from the trade center. Uh, went up to try and find my squad. It was like, 26th floor or 23rd floor, 26th Fed. And uh, the communications had been all, um, they were all out. So I think I had to run up the stairs. No one was there. Came back down, found someone who said, yeah, there, all the agents are forward at a rally point about a block from the trade center waiting for instructions. So my car was right on Broadway street. Um, and I went back to my car, changed into my jeans right on Broadway Street. No one, no one cared, and I headed down there. Uh, so we were a block from the World Trade Center, waiting for instructions. And on the way there, I was on I think the intersection of Church and Murray Street, past the jet engine that was just lie, lying there on the sidewalk. Um, while I was at the rally point with maybe a hundred other agents, I did something I do probably. 20 times a day, which is reach, reach down for my wep my weapon, my sidearm, making sure it's there and reaching down for my credentials to make sure they're in my back pocket. My credentials were missing. And I'm like, Oh, I had just changed on Broadway street from my suit into my jeans. My credentials could have either fallen out onto the street or they're in my suit, which is in my car. So I was, uh, that's not something you want to do as an agent, lose your credentials. So I just said to my partners who were at the rally point, I just got to go grab, you know, see if I can find my credentials. So I ran back to 26 fed, found my credentials that when that was happening, the, the, um, was it the South tower had fallen and, uh, Rob, it was like a Godzilla movie. Everybody was running on Broadway street, you know, obviously away from the trade center area going uptown. Mm -hmm. And I had, left that area. So I had to go back to find my, you know, the agents that were at the rally point. So 
I ran the three quarters of a mile back to see what was going on. And uh, when I got there, there was only five other agents. One was a supervisor. I was never a supervisor. I was always a street agent. So there was uh, one supervisor and five of us. There was just so basically six agents there. Knowing it, no one else was there. The supervisor said, we think we may have lost our assistant director who was down here. We need to see if we can find him. I want uh, you. And then there was a female agent, Agent Fortunato. Her and I were to travel on Church Street, which is um, on the block, on the World Trade Center block. But it, when you think about the North and the South Towers, they were both hit. They're sort of uh, further back mm-hmm. towards Hudson, and um, but they're all within the same block. So we were we were walking down Church Street, and to our right was the World Trade Center. And to the left was a department store called Century 21. Everything is on fire. We're walking over mangled metal. Um, there is crackling fire overhead, which is the second trade center, which is the uh, the North North Tower is still on fire. And it is um, all this white dust is falling on us. Uh, by that time, her and I are the only ones there. We've gotten a mask because there's uh, one ambulance there that mm. handed us masks and we're walking the street and we're the only two there. And we're in, in you know, the, the tower, the first tower that had fallen, the South Tower, we could, uh, a piece of it, maybe 15, 20 stories had fallen into the ground and her and I could have literally touched that. Um, I remember being scared, uh, not understanding that people had, you know, died in those towers from the tower falling. I knew that people had probably perished after the plane hit it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we walked that, and you know, this is all happening in less than a half hour from the time that I, you know, start my run back to the trade center area and walking the street. And uh, we basically walked the street, walked back, told our supervisor that we hadn't seen anything, and then all of a sudden we hear the second, you know, second tower is falling, and it. Uh, you know, falls with the force where now all this black smoke is, you know, we're now we're out of the building and we're running, we're trying to stay ahead of this black, um, you know, plume of smoke that is going up. All the, all the streets are like uh, valleys because of the buildings are so tall and we're trying to outrun this black plume of smoke. And that's sort of where we, uh, we did and then ended up at Chinatown, which was the next rally point for the FBI eventually ended up uh, since the communication was knocked out we went to the intrepid um, sea and air museum which was on the uh, hudson river and it was docked there that was uh we stayed there for a while working essentially shagging leads and then from there we went to our fbi garage and stayed there for some time and then eventually my squad got put out of jfk to to work some leads there uh when you know i worked financial fraud so i didn't work terrorist cases so i mm-hmm. didn't have a major role in these cases but when something like this happens it's all hands on deck so everybody is jumping in to do their part and much of the stuff that i was doing was you know getting leads from individuals who had tapes that we needed to pick up things like that yeah and uh, just listening to you you know you during this uh during the horrible day that it is and was 
um, just the rallying point that you, you were all, you were on the move and you had to make decisions at a split second. And just thinking back at it, um, you know, it must be, you know, looking back at that day, it's it must be sometimes hard to process. Like when you think, probably think about it every day, but also, uh, when the anniversaries come up, um, yeah, I remember that day as well with the, you know, where I was at one time at the place I was working at, the people were all watching like a hundred people were on the TVs, like in shock. I mean, it was just, it was just unbelievable to watch and surreal and horrible. Um, and that's a, that's a horrible, horrible day. And, you know, hopefully, uh, we can always remember that this happened. Yeah. And, you know, I had to, uh, I was, you know, basically instructed to come back at 11 o'clock at night at the intrepid. So we were walking my wife and my, you know, daughter in the, in the, stroller we were walking the streets and just seeing people's reactions and looking into the bars and seeing everybody watch television you know as an agent you wouldn't want to be anywhere but there and then to see how the people in new york responded so favorably to us they were out there for months you know with good you know with posters you know thanking us and uh it was you know really inspirational and everybody was sort of pulling together so it was you know, it was something great, but like you said, um, you know, the first anniversary and I, I was a training in South Carolina, I, you know, I had held it in for a year and, uh, and once they started, you know, sort of honoring that day, I, yeah, it was a very, very difficult day for me. So, um, yeah, I'll always remember it, but, uh, it was, uh, it was an interesting thing and, you know, there's thousands of agents and all of a sudden I'm, you know, one of the last you know, six agents that's down there. It's sort of crazy how things work where, you know, you're not down there initially and then you're running to get, you know, your credentials and then you're back and all of a sudden you're just sort of put in a situation that um, is, you know, a once in a million situation. Yeah. And then, uh, I mean, we're, you and I are from the Boston area. So um, in 2013, the Boston Marathon bombing, April 19th, uh, 2013 Patriots Day. It's a tradition every April 19th in the in Boston and Massachusetts, where uh, it's a holiday. Believe it or not, it's a state holiday, and uh, the Red Sox play in the Boston Marath- uh, Boston Marathon's going on. Yeah, and many times I had gone with my family to watch the Red Sox, you know, and then head out to the marathon a couple hours later. I think the game starts at 11, so by the time the game's over, you're able to see people crossing the, the finish line at the marathon. So that was always a big day for us. And, uh, yeah, um, you know, I was at that point, I was up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire as an agent, but that's part of the Boston division. Mm-hmm. So it was another all hands on deck kind of thing, especially when the officer from MIT, uh, Sir Collier, um, got shot at like 1030 at night by Sarnev. Um, one of the Sarnet brothers, all of a sudden the FBI said, every every agent has got to come in right now. You've got to be in by like one or two in the morning. I think that was if the marathon was um, was the 13th, I think, or the 15th, I think um, that day was the 18th where they told us all, everyone has to get in. And, you know, you, once again, you're back in. I didn't. I didn't head out to Watertown. I was just shagging leads in Boston. But once again, you're sort of part of that inside group, and you're, you know, some of the people that I was working with were, you know, trying to figure out who Sarnav was. You know, looking at all those videos. So, yeah, and they got those videos out pretty quick. The law enforcement 
Um, they were out like within 48 hours, I remember, and there was an all APB out for, for those two. Um, they found him quick. And I remember that uh, all hands on deck where I remember with the Boston Police Department with uh, uh, Chief there, Ed Davis, they were they were all over in the state police were also uh, yep. heavily involved, all hands on deck. I mean, they wanted to really like get this, get these Sarnoff brothers quick. And uh, the press was, I think the press really played a great deal in that as well, um, especially in Boston. Um, they, the press really got the leads out, the pitchers out, and that was just the lead until those guys got caught. And one of them got caught. The other one was uh, shot. But, um, and the, the end result with that was the younger brother was, uh, found in a boat. I think was it Watertown. Yep. Boat in Watertown. They shot that boat up, but he lives. <laughs> and I think he's at, uh, what is he at? Max prison in Colorado. Um, yeah, a shout out to uh, you know I know I'm a you know white male FBI agent, but one of the the best FBI agents that I've ever worked with was Laura Hanlon. She was a you know federal law enforcement officer of the year nationally, but she took part in trying to figure out who Sarnev was, and you know she worked the Whitey Bulger case. Um, you know we have female agents you know across the U.S. and there's some of the best agents out there. Yeah, and it was a really a great um, when they caught him. I think that was uh, very um, that was just a great uh, relief for the people in Boston because they they were on. I mean, they were being looked for 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 many days. So uh, yeah. a year later, um, you're uh, I believe you ran the Boston Marathon. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, I uh, you know I had gone through three terrorist events, so I, I think I was. You know, just by happenstance, probably the only FBI agent that happened to be, you know, um, in the division in Atlanta and then in New York and then in Boston during these three terrorist events. So I said, this is it. Um, you know, I'm sort of a, you know, runner, um, but I'm, you know, I run like three to five miles. That's about it. So I got a number because we had this, you know, relationship with the marathon, the FBI did. So I was able to get a number as a law enforcement officer committed to running. I was going to show the terrorists. This was going to be something very symbolic for me. Um, I think I had got my mileage up to about 18 miles uh, in January. And then I uh, like busted out my IT band. So that <laughs> I had no, su- no support in my knee. And I think I didn't run from mid January to, um, about three or four days before the marathon. And then I ran like two or three miles and pronounced myself, um, good enough. I had already spent the money. I was going to give the marathon a try. So I went out there and, uh, I think I, I had a white t-shirt, tried to write something, uh, some cursing message to the, the terrorist <laughs> on my, uh, on my shirt. I was going to be, this was going to be something great. And, um, at about mile 13, I just fell apart and, uh, struggled uh i would think i was you know at an eight minute nine minute mile clip up to that point and then i just struggled uh 13 miles but i i didn't give in i finished it i uh thought you're gonna ask the question i think it was four hours and 40 minutes um it was terrible it was it was like the worst experience of my life my it band didn't um didn't self-destruct but it was some other part of my body that did and it was terrible 
when I crossed the finish line, I, yeah, there was nothing, I had nothing left. So Yeah. And, and I, I think that's, that's great that you ran, you ran it a year later, you know, to show support to the marathon and to the people of Boston. Um, people, the Boston marathon is a really special event in Boston. Um, I've been Absolutely. to a few of them and it's, it's just a great day on Patriots day and it's a great way to celebrate, you know, the city, the state and really, um, you know, really get involved. Um, so after the Boston marathon, um, I believe you also had in a case where you had to arrest somebody, um, at a party at a castle. And that it really intrigues me. It may have been before the Boston marathon bombing, but you had arrested somebody who was, um, in a, uh, their birthday party, I believe. And you, you arrested them on the spot. Yeah. So that was, uh, it's funny because that sort of went hand in hand with the case with the 9-11, um, you know, the, the, uh, the bombing, I'm sorry, the, um, the planes that in, uh, down in lower Manhattan. So that happened, uh, 9-11 happened on September 11th. And I was one of the first agents off of working that case. It was, uh, September 24th. And, you know, you, we had all been pulling 16 hour days, you know, uh, no breaks on the weekends. And all of a sudden I am like, my, hair hurt Rob that's how tired I was and uh, I got a call and they say hey we want you to swear out a complaint and we want you to arrest this investment advisor tonight and that's unheard of you don't you know swear out a complaint and arrest someone on the same day some of these cases I will spend years and years working you know one case and now they want me to um, you know they want me to swear out a complaint this, what this guy did, his name is Hans Peter Balder. He was a Swiss banker. He had uh, worked for UBS in Saudi Arabia. He had high net worth clients, and he had stolen $70 million from them. And UBS had figured it out about four or five days before he confronted Walder. And um, Hans Peter, he, he basically admitted to it. And so... Uh, Hans Peter agreed that they can come. What what he what Hans Peter had done was he had spent fifty million dollars on building a hotel called the Castle at Terrytown, and he he bought the building. It was a castle for less than two million dollars, and then he wanted to convert it into a hotel. So he had to get all the the piping and the modifications to it, and he had to get all the infrastructure up on the, uh, to the castle where it was sort of like a rocky hill. So they all had to dig into the bedrock to get all this piping up there. And so although the castle was ended up being worth about $14 million, he had spent about $50 million on this castle. <laughs> and it was money that he had stolen from his clients all, all across the world. And uh, so he confessed to UBS um you know, probably around the 20th of September mm -hmm. and they brought in auditors into the hotel to do some auditing. And instead of Hans Peter telling his family what he had done, he told them that since um, he had a nominee as the owner of the, um, of the hotel, he had a nominee that was a Saudi Arabian um, individual. So he told his family that people were coming in to audit it because of the, of the terrorism in 9-11. And so that's the only reason they were there. And he had done nothing wrong. Meanwhile, he had confessed to UBS 
and uh, what he had told UBS is, hey, I am hosting my 30th anniversary party with my wife on September 24th, and I don't care what you do to me after that. I just want to be able to have this party for me and my wife, and it's going to be with family and friends at the Great Hall in the hotel. And that's the, sort of the banquet hall where they would host weddings. So what UBS and the prosecutors believed was that Hans Peter could potentially commit suicide after this 30th anniversary party. So they asked that I that I arrest him at the party, which is uh, <laughs> cra- it's absolutely crazy. Uh, it, and and so there I, I went and I swore out the warrant. I interviewed the UBS people who told me that Hans Peter had confessed. I um, you know, got everything signed it before a judge, got the arrest warrant, and I went up and, you know, Licky Split got up to Tarrytown, which is right off of 287 when you go right. over the Tappan Zee Bridge. That's, you mm-hmm. could actually, as, as you're driving 287, you could look up and you could see the castle up there on the hill. Um, so I went up and we met some police officers from Tarrytown. I was with one other FBI agent. And uh, we are watching, you know, we finally get down to this great hall where all the guests are and Hans Peter's regaling them with some tall tale. And he's up there with the mic and Rob, you know, I could have busted him right there and just walked (laughs) in and arrested him. And it would have been the greatest story. And um, I don't know why I didn't, but I just thought, you know, we weren't here to embarrass him. We're actually just here to arrest him. So I let him finish his speech and motioned for him to come out of the hall, hold him who I was and that we needed to place him under arrest. And he tried to fake like we were just his friends. And the gentleman is you know, 58 years old, salt and pepper hair, six wow. five. Wow. And he puts his arm around uh, the other agent and the other agent pushes back, pushes him because we're all tired at this point. We're not going to take anything and, Really, no one should be touching, you know, the agents anyways. We're trying to, trying to do him a solid. And um, so we end up handcuffing him. I think we put a um, some kind of cloth over his hand so no one, everybody knows him. They don't know us. And we're trying not to cause trouble. And it's just two of us. And uh, I get him into the Tarrytown police car. And here comes his wife, Steffi. She's German-born. And uh, she thinks that we are falsely arresting him because he has lied to his wife and his family that, you know, they, that um, the Saudi Arabian owner is the reason that, you know, Hans Peter is being falsely arrested. And it was all a lie. So she opens the Terry Tom police door to the car, to their squad car, and I shut it and we, uh, we beat feet down to Terry Tom police department. Uh, he, where he goes to jail for the night and then I pick him up the next day. Wow. You know, he eventually pleads guilty to stealing $70 million from about 22 customers, uh, clients and, uh, Steffi divorces him. Uh, but you know, by now he's out of jail. I don't know where he is. Wow. So, that is uh, unbelievable. That is, that, that, that is unbelievable. The one, the, the thing you talk, you just mentioned about putting the arm around the other agent, like they were buddies. That's like, Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was uh, Kevin Irwin and he didn't want to take it. And so he pushed back and <laughs> wow. You know, I don't know. He had every right to, he had every right to do that. Um, 
but I just wanted to get out of there in one piece and uh, get this guy, arrest him, and you know, deal deal with the rest, the aftermath. Wow. So we're going to be yeah. wrapping up here and uh, just have like Great. one question here. Um, do you ever like now uh, you retired from the FBI and now you are working, who are you working for now? Yeah, now I'm uh, a contractor, but I work full time at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Seaport in Boston. So I work on their civil side, um, you know, trying to hound the people who have been con- convicted and have restitutions to get their money over to the victims. Okay. Wow. That is so, uh, I'm sure your FBI career helped you with, uh, what you're doing now so you can take care of those folks. Um, and yeah, then, absolutely. so looking back one final question, like, do you ever, like, do you ever look back and say, what, why do people do these things? Or, I mean, no one's perfect, but why, like, why would somebody try to steal 70 million or do this or do that? And you're like, look back and say, wow. I mean, why did they do that? Yeah. And, you know, I asked Hans Peter why he did it. And, you know, a lot of people have good intentions. They're going to get the money back and it becomes a slippery slope, slippery slope. And then all of a sudden they can't, um, they know they're not going to be able to repay it. But, you know, when I went Rob to become an agent, I used to see things as good or bad, black or white. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through my time with the FBI, I realized that everything is almost a shade of gray and, you have to look at a case and you really have to listen to people, even, you know, the bad guys, the informants, the victims, you really have to listen to them and understand the nuances and figure out what color gray these things are. And, you know, that's, that's sort of what I learned. And it's, it was a lesson for me professionally. I, you know, it made me a much better agent, but it also personal. And I want to thank Dennis Regan for that interview we did last year with the uh, FBI, his career in the FBI. And don't forget, next week we have Episode 5, the Doug Flutie Hail Mary Pass in 1984 against Miami. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week for Episode 5.